the <coughs> I would like to be silent for about half an hour. <coughs> and after that, I might have something to say. <coughs> so you have to be patient. <laughs> An amazing song, too. So <coughs> it seems to me that song calling for the healing of the name is on topic very much with the message of the Book of Revelation. That is what that book is up to. We'll talk about it this uh, time together now. And again, this afternoon, uh, where the topic will be especially directly the, the name in the book of Revelation. So, <coughs> thank you. So we are <coughs> looking here at an illustration from the Cambrai Apocalypse that is more than 700 years old. And we are seeing... <coughs> the heavenly council, the scenes that, were, that was uh, enacted for us here this, uh, <clears throat> this morning. We're seeing it here depicted. And we are seeing John looking in on the proceedings in the heavenly council through heaven's open door. Glimpses inside Revelation's open door. That's where we are. <clears throat> and we uh, saw that this it happens in the seven seals, where we are now. It happens in the seven trumpets. It happens in the <coughs> seven bowls. That's where John stands the whole time throughout the book. That's where we have to pe perceive ourselves positioned when we read the book of Revelation. We're always seeing it as a secondary audience, standing outside that room looking in to the realities in the heavenly council. <clears throat> and now reading uh, and repeating some of the things that were done for our scripture. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, I wish I dared to say it in as loud a voice as it was said. But you <coughs> would be, that would be uh, maybe so dissonant that we'd have to try it out a few times before we dare to do it. Who has what it takes to open the scroll and break its seals? That's the next scene. So we are in chapter 5, and this is in some ways the most pivotal scene in the entire book. <clears throat> and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I wept and wept profusely because no one, had, no one was found to have what it takes to open the scroll and to look into it. And I am reading this in my own translation, and uh, every single little detail I have pondered, and I have looked, you know, where other translations seem to me adequate, I, have, I would accept that. I'm not uh, going overboard one way or the other, but I have uh, striven for precision as much as I can. And here, 
<coughs> you see the scene in the heavenly council uh, in the Trinity Apocalypse. This is the scroll that is sealed with seven seals. This is John looking in on it. And the, the call goes out, who has what it takes to open the scroll and break its seals. And there was a search committee appointed. And the search committee, they looked at various candidates and they made their list and there was no one. They looked above, they looked on earth, they looked below the earth, and the search committee came back and said, we don't have anyone who can do it. That's what you have. And in <clears throat> this illustration, this is from the Jews Apocalypse, in, that is in the possession of Oxford. There is John in that, looking at the scroll here, and weeping because no one can uh, open it. And the cause, the, he wept and wept profusely. That is in our text. Now we need help. We need outside help. And I read this last night, and I will read it again today. This is Adela Yarbrough Collins, a New Testament scholar who has taught for many, many years at Yale and who wrote a book, uh, she's written several books on Revelation, but this is one written early in her career uh, for a lay audience, for just anyone. The first four verses of chapter 5 imply that the heavenly council is faced with a serious problem. Good, or you agree with that? She making up stuff? Is there, is there a basis in the text for saying that? There surely is. And I would even take it a step further and say that the serious problem is a crisis in the heavenly council. The first four verses of chapter 5 tell us that there was a crisis in the heavenly council. That is another way of saying it. And then <clears throat> in the same place, she says, in the context of the apocalypse as a whole, it is clear that the problem facing the heavenly council is the rebellion of Satan, which is paralleled by rebellion on earth. Chapter 5 presupposes the old story of Satan's rebellion against God, which leads to the fall of creation. And we went through three methodological commitments last night, how to read the book of Revelation. And the first of those commitments was <coughs> become a re-reader. Because Adela Yarbrough Collins comment there that the first four verses show that there is a crisis and then explaining that, uh, you know, why did that happen? That is a re-reader perspective that the rebellion of Satan matters, and that there is an influence retroactively upstream in the text from chapter 12 on chapter 5. And those insights, that might seem obvious, because it is quite obvious, but it isn't obvious when you read commentaries, because, and even in commentaries or, or uh, perspectives in our community, because that sense of why there is a crisis in the heavenly council is under-projected, under-exposed. 
So <coughs> let's just repeat that. We <coughs> looked at it again. It's easy to see that there is an influence of chapter 12 downstream in the book. But we are saying, and we <coughs> have seen, that there now is an influence upstream. We saw it the first hour with the voices that say, holy, 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 day and night, because the voice of accusation talks day and night. And now, in chapter 5, we have a similar uh, relationship. The term worthy, who is worthy, I have translated who has what it takes. And I have done that for a reason, because that is actually what is implied there. Worthy is too general a term. It is not precise enough. It doesn't bring up in our visual field what the sort of worthiness is all about. And the term itself, oxios is the word in Greek, it has to do with scales, balancing of scales, bringing that one or bringing that up to the level of the beam. That's actually what it means. So who is weighty enough? Who is in some ways heavy enough to make that, bring that into balance, to resolve that imbalance, if you, if you please? So I'm not telling you to abandon the word worthy, but to have what it takes is in some ways a more uh, a more uh, 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 makes it easier to visualize it. And one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has won the war, and he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Two comments here. So, John is weeping, uh, uh, as we can see, and then uh, he is told that the lion of the tribe of Judah, and often that is translated as overcome. And that is not a wrong translation, but the verb needs an object, because he is talking to us about the cosmic conflict. And who gets, who is getting the upper hand in the cosmic conflict? So my translation makes that visible. Not just that he has won or he has overcome. The context of that victory has to be visible to us. He has won the war. And John is cognizant of the war. He's cognizant that there is a conflict. So he's won the war. And the background text here, and this is actually one of the most important background texts, no matter which you, where you land, you put your feet down in the New Testament. Isaiah 11, 1 to 10. You cannot read it often enough, and I will leave the squim sorry that I did not we did not have an occasion to go through and do a walkthrough of Isaiah 11, 1 to 10. But <clears throat> that, that background, the root of David, is from Isaiah 11, 1 to 10, the revealer that comes to light there and fills the earth with the knowledge of the Lord, just as the water covers the sea. And... <clears throat> 
uh, that resolution uh, that uh, is brought there. <clears throat> you see, my illustration is also that kind of illustration. There is, there is a, it, it, it implies a battle scene. It implies a victory won in the context of war. <clears throat> and here we have the Trinity Apocalypse uh, showing the same thing, that he comes and takes the scroll here, and here he is a victim of violence. Here the lamb has a wound that is bleeding. So that, uh, <clears throat> But I don't think the Trinity Apocalypse or any of the others quite succeed in conveying that war theme. <clears throat> so then we read, uh, yeah, so the emphasis there on being slain with violence is the Greek word sphazo. And the first person who was subject to sphazo, to that who is described with those, in those terms, is, is Abel. Cain killed Abel with violence. And the image that comes up when we hear the lamb killed with violence is not the image of a priest that slaughters a lamb in the context of the sanctuary service. The image that comes up is the, a person who is killed with violence on the battlefield or who is killed in the streets. It is not the serene sacrifice of Christ that is coming up here and now in our time set to organ music. It is an ugly scene of the lamb killed with violence out there in the context of the cosmic conflict. In the book of Revelation, he is actually the lamb killed with violence from the foundation of the world. Because early on in primordial time, there was another person who thought that he should do him in. That is the perspective. That is how that is deep etched in Revelation's consciousness. So here again, John is watching that. Uh, and uh, Oh, let me just walk that through. I had planned to walk it through yes, uh, slowly. Let's do it. I saw, there is John, that's my first circle. John saw there, and then he saw in the middle of the throne, that's that scene. And he saw it in the middle of the four living creatures. Those are the arrows showing them. And he showed it in the middle of the uh, 24 elders. That's them. And then the scene that he had been killed with violence. And that's the kind of image we have to have. Yes, he is victorious. He is victorious. He graces the banner, you know, like Iwo Jima or something. You know, the banner of victory. But he is a victim of violence. And somehow victorious as victim. Those are quite counterintuitive uh, ideas. <coughs> and here is uh, Albrecht Dürer's uh, depiction of the same, and there is a neatness to that depiction of the lamb and its blood that somehow is not quite adequate for the setting or, 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 the, or the text, but we are grateful for it anyway, and these are amazing illustrations. Dürer's uh, illustrations are probably the most exquisite. They are a little later than the Anglo uh, 
French apocalypses. And then, <coughs> yes, here, seven horns and seven eyes. Uh, and uh, that is, uh, here you see the seven lamb with the seven horns and the seven eyes. They have actually paid attention to detail very much. <coughs> there is a revelation inside the book of Revelation. There is a, re a revelation acted out in these scenes that takes place in chapter 4 and 5. And the book, or the scroll sealed with seven seals, is in some ways also a book of revelation that comes to light uh, as he <coughs> enacts it. And he went. And here there is a, 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 an incongruity in the verbal tenses of, of, in the Greek. And he went. And you should expect the next verb to also be in the imperfect, but it is in the perfect tense. I know that to talk grammar in the audience is, is a risky thing to do, especially in America. <coughs> but, but there is a shift in verbal tenses, and some people think, oh, John didn't know Greek very well. He kind of messes it up, but he knew Greek quite well. He wrote it that way for a reason. He went and he has taken. It's a finished, he's done it, he has, has completed it. He has taken the scroll from the right hand of the one who is seated on the throne, and now he will open it. And here we see that scene again, and I have magnified it a little, the <coughs> scroll here, and the uh, prerequisites for being able to do that. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sing a new song. You have what it takes to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were killed with violence. Notice how that is repeated. First it was said, don't weep. You know, he was killed with violence, and I saw a lamb as though killed with violence. And here, when they pick it up, they remember what is the exact quality or qualification that you have uh, in the lamb. So you have what it takes to take the scroll and to open its seal, for you were killed with violence. And again, I use that image to illustrate what they are uh, praising him for. And then again, <coughs> as was read for us, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. The lamb that was killed with violence has what it takes to deserve the power and riches and praise. And that's how that scene uh, ends here again in the, uh, the Albrecht Dürer's uh, illustration. So, I will not go into detail on the opening of the scroll. That's where most interpreters think the meat is. You know, that, that we have to find out what, what happens there. I will go a little bit into it, but not, not that much. So, we have seen in our methods, uh, approach to this book, the necessity of being a rereader of going back to the Old Testament, and that God is not the only one who is at work in the world. And then <coughs> we have 
also, when we did that, we have moved from the ashes of earthly chaos to the fire of heavenly conflict and crisis, and not, as many have thought, from earthly chaos to heavenly calm. So we have ascertained that there are problems on earth, and we got to heaven, and we thought that heaven would be the solution to earth's problems. But initially, it doesn't look like that. Initially, it looks like heaven has a problem and is actually the source or the point of origin uh, of the problem. <clears throat> so, what awaits us now in this book that is sealed with seven seals? That is uh, the issue. And I will propose a paradigm that is somewhat different from the one we are used to. <clears throat> Here they are, and they, uh, the subject before us is the content of the scroll. So, <clears throat> what is the method? How are we going to do this? Should we, should we look in the Old Testament? Should we see if there is something in the Old Testament that helps you know, shed light on it? Let's try. So, the scroll in Revelation is described as a scroll written on the inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And is there a scroll like that in the Old Testament? There is a scroll like that in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Ezekiel, and the Ezekiel's contribution to the heavenly council imagery of the Bible is huge. So Ezekiel is also uh, thematically a good place to go. I looked and a hand was stretched out to me, and a written scroll was in it. He spread it before me. It had writing on the front and on the back. And written on it were words of lamentation and mourning and woe. You see the similarity, the way these scrolls are described? But you see also a difference. It appears on first sight as though the scroll in Revelation has unknown content. But the scroll in Ezekiel, the content of that scroll is known. And it's bad stuff. It's not good stuff. It's lamentation and mourning and woe. So a first hint here for us who are accustomed to think that the content of the sealed scroll is, is unknown could be that maybe we need to revise that. <clears throat> so the content of the Old Testament scroll is known. Lamentation, mourning, and woe. Is the content of Revelation scroll also known. Now, just as a hypothesis, just as a working hypothesis, a crisis in the heavenly council, is that crisis from the point of view caused by realities unknown to the heavenly council? For example, that they would like to know the future, like you and I, who are earthlings that we would like some knowledge of information about the future, prophecy, history. Is that what the heavenly council, just by way of hypothesis, is that what the heavenly council wants to know? Or is the crisis in the heavenly council 
caused by things they know all too well. By the discrepancy between expectations and reality, for example. And maybe also thinking about, since the crisis is caused by the rebellion of Satan, maybe the heavenly council thought there was, had an idea, had thought a thing or two about how to solve that crisis. I'm just saying this by way of hypothesis. Does it vex the minds of the heavenly counselors? Uh, what is it? Is it in ignorance of the future or something else? So here, the, my question is, the scroll, does it have known or unknown content? They are described, described very similar, but <coughs> Ezekiel's content is known. So, <coughs> again, just to highlight the similarity there uh, and to make Ezekiel the candidate text for a revelation scroll. <coughs> so, you could have content that is known, but content that isn't understood. You could have sealed a, a, a scroll that is sealed, not in the sense of lacking information, but in the sense of lacking understanding. That is, again, I'm saying this by way of hypothesis. So here, sealed as lack of understanding. Do you have anything in the Bible that suggests sealing in that sense? That John is talking to us in metaphorical language, not just literal, that it was literally sealed and we have no idea what's in the scroll. We could have an idea what's in the scroll, but we have no idea how to explain it, how to understand it. Here is Isaiah. <clears throat> the vision of all this has become for you like the words of a sealed document. It, if, if it is given to those who can read, with the command, read this, he says, we cannot, for it is sealed. And it, if, if it is given to those who cannot read, saying, read this, they say, we cannot read. What's the problem in Isaiah? The scroll is sealed, not because you don't know what's in it, but because you can't understand it. It is sealing at the level of comprehension, at the level of, of, of understanding. <clears throat> so, similar in <clears throat> the book of Daniel. He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are to remain secret and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall be purified and cleansed and refined. None of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. What's the problem here in Daniel? Is it that you can't read the words? You don't see what is in the words? No, you understand the words. You can perfectly read it perfectly well, but you cannot understand it. It is level, sealing at the level of understanding. That's my, uh, the perspective here. So the meaning of revelation, <coughs> not only something unknown, <laughs> this is maybe taking it in a little different angle, just taking a step back. So here is what I am proposing to read into this. That the concept of revelation, in the book of Revelation especially, is not only something unknown, but something outside the range of ordinary thought. And it is not only something outside ordinary thought, 
but also something contrary to ordinary thought. You follow me? I'm just, I can sort of for, forewarn you of what is coming. I don't think that what God has done to solve the cosmic conflict and the lamb that was killed with violence, that's not how ordinary thinking people, angels or humans, would have solved it. That's what, what I'm proposing here, what I'm hoping we could, could see. So here, we are going to be illuminated by revelation. But it's revelation as a surprise. It's revelation as something unanticipated. It was, we couldn't have thought it, we never thought about it. And we could certainly not expect that it would be that. That's what we're thinking here. And one more. A revelation that is outside the realm of ordinary thought and contrary to ordinary thought is not only a revelation, it is also an act of persuasion. What is revealed to the heavenly council in the Lamb that was killed with violence is not what they expected, but it, does, it is something that has a persuasive impact. They get one over to it, as it were. That is what we are uh, uh, proposing here. So you have the option of the usual option that sealed means content that is unknown or uh, is the content known or unknown? The usual option is to consider it unknown. But we also have sealed <coughs> in this pa uh, pattern here that we have it unsealing at the level of comprehension. Uh, so here, scenarios for unsealing. <coughs> you have unlocking the book, and you can have that, but you can also have unlocking the mind. What is opened up, yes, we get to see something we had not expected, and it has an impact on how we think about these matters. So in the historical perspective of the scroll that is sealed with seven seals, it is a perspective on human history. But so you use a, you use a, telescope, a telescope to see it. But I am suggesting that, that you need the periscope. You need to see above the clouds. It is reality as it appears in an above-the-cloud vision. That is what the difference here. And this is the figure we have looking in on the heavenly council and seeing reality from the point of view of the heavenly council. So <coughs> here, then, seeing above the clouds, as it were, and the unlocking of the mind. I think I could win, I, I could get support for this view that I'm going to, to uh, uh, feature here uh, in that perspective that we have in chapter 5. This is not Jesus in an instrumental role. That's what I'm trying to say. It's not Jesus is an instrumental role. Jesus as the man who has the key. 
it is Jesus as the key. It is the revelation of Christ, the revelation of the Lamb killed with violence that solves the impasse in the heavenly council and not something else that is in the scroll uh, that is the, the, the uh, reason for the crisis. <clears throat> so let me try to walk this through and see what you think. Uh, to have what it takes is to tilt the scale or to balance the scale. The heavenly council is in a crisis over a scroll that no one can open. We probably will agree on that one. <clears throat> Finding someone who has what it takes is a statement cognizance of the, cognizant of the task. They must know something, and there is an implication of that. So there is the image for that. <clears throat> Allusions to the Old Testament indicate that the content of the scroll to some extent is known. Let me just ex uh, try to exemplify that. The second seal brings to light a red horse and a person with a huge sword. You never knew that that was the something in reality. It's a, it's a symbol of war an element known or unknown to humans. You're surprised that there is a red horse and a sword. You're not surprised. You've seen it all before. It is not unfamiliar. The third horse has a, uh, is a symbol of famine. The food prices are going up, going through the sky, worse than they are now. And was that a new thing? Is that novelty? It's not novelty. The third one is death and Hades. Is that novelty? It's not. So you can in some ways say that the <coughs> scroll in Revelation, although making us maybe feel that there is going to be unknown content here, shows content all too familiar. Well, <coughs> to unseal such a scroll requires more than getting to know the content. Maybe I should say it is precisely because the content is known that there is a crisis in the heavenly council and there is no counterpoint, no weight to balance the beam as it were. So <clears throat> what bothers the heavenly council is the press. These are, now I'm, I'm sharpening these as propositions because it's better to say something very clear to make it possible for you to assess and, and you can uh, assent or, or, or dissent. Here is what I think. What bothers the heavenly council is the present they know and not the future they don't know. What bothers the heavenly council is not the rebellion of Lucifer per se, but God's response to the rebellion of Lucifer. They cannot understand that. What changes the heart and minds of the heavenly council is the lamb killed with violence and not what is in the scroll. When he comes and takes the scroll, it's over. He and they start singing and praising him and they are persuaded and everything is in, in order for them, from their perspective, from the perspective of the people or the beings in the heavenly council. So here, <coughs> this is a, a, a painting, very, very famous painting of, of the Lamb in, in uh, Revelation and its impact. 
and the lamb is in the middle, and that is my is what I think is in in the in the center of Revelation's uh, point. Okay, let's jump to chapter eight, <coughs> verse one. This is surely one of the most strangest verses in the Bible, wouldn't you agree? That when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I would like to give a suggestion for the background for that silence, what it means. How will we do it? I might look in the Old Testament. Let's look in the Old Testament, see what we find. <coughs> so pay attention to the Old Testament background text again for the silence in heaven. So here in Isaiah in chapter 52, in the lead up to <coughs> the most, probably the most famous text in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, which is a continuation of a depiction of the suffering servant in Isaiah. There are four texts in Isaiah describing the suffering servant. This is the fourth and last one. See, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up and shall be very high. By the way, this text is also echoing in the Gospel of John, in chapter 12 in the Gospel of John. My servant shall succeed. That's what it says. He shall be exalted and lifted up and shall be very high. That you could take it as literally and figuratively, and John uses it for, as a symbol of this crucifixion of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Just as there were many who were astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of mortals. That's what happens to a person when they are killed with violence. They get disfigured. They don't look right. This is an, an unattractive uh, vision, as it were. So he shall startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which had not been told them, they shall see. And that which they had not heard, they shall contemplate. That which lay outside the realm of ordinary thought, that is what happens. And it has a persuasive impact. And uh, uh, here is Isaiah, here in looking in the Old Testament, and we find this. And the silence in heaven, the best candidate text in the Old Testament, and I have looked for every single one that, uh, that have been proposed, and there is none, none that rises to the level of this one, that the silence for about half an hour is <coughs> prefigured here. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. They shall stay silent. Which is, which do you think is the most deepest measure of surprise, the biggest measure of astonishment? Is it when you are astonished into silence or when you are astonished some other way? 
Silence is a pretty good measure of being surprised, isn't it? And this is silence in the face of a revelation that was completely unexpected. And I am saying, for a problem that was known, because of the level of the bean, the, the, the one weight on one side and now the weight on the other side. That's what we are proposing here. I'm quoting from <coughs> Klaus Balzer's commentary in the Hermeneia series, that's the most scholarly uh, Old Testament commentary. The scene is set in a court of law where a dispute about the view to be taken of a certain person is under consideration. My view of who that person is, is God. God is the, it's the dispute over what view to take of God. That may not be entirely what Klaus Balzer has in mind. Those present are the judge, the person in question, witnesses brought by the disputing parties and listeners. And the verdict, that's what we have read already, the verdict in, they are surprised, they shall shut their mouths before, you know, and they will shall, what they have not seen or heard or thought that shall be revealed to them. So let's <coughs> summarize. The heavenly council was in crisis over a scroll that no one could open. Finding someone who has what it takes was not easy. And here is the hard part and the best part. The lamb in the middle is himself the revelation that breaks the impasse. Not the first or the second or the third or the fourth seal. Those are ex expressions of the content of the impasse. That's why there is an impasse. They are not the solution to the impasse. The solution to that is, is the lamb itself, the lamb in the middle there. So <clears throat> I have maybe one or two more slides. I'd just like to, to see if we can tweak something in a certain direction. So we begin here with the cosmic conflict and Luther's rebellion, which is told in the book of Revelation. And we are in chapter 5 now, the crisis in the heavenly council, and here depicting the Lamb's victory. And then Revelation proceeds to talk about the great ordeal, talk about historical realities, human situation, history, sure. And then in the end, in chapters 21 and 22, we have a, everything ends well. So here we have history, story, and end, end in a temporal sense. So here it ends with a new earth. The book of Revelation is a huge corrective to human perceptions of eternity. Because most believers think that when, you do, that when Jesus comes back or when everything is over, we're going to go to heaven and we'll stay there forever. Don't, don't think that is not Revelation. In Revelation, you are going to live in squim for eternity. Get, get used to it. Get used to it. Don't, don't get homesick for some other place because the book of Revelation promises an earth renewed. And it says that the dwelling of God will be with humans here. And the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven from God. And it will be here on earth that there will be an eternity. 
And I think even Seventh-day Adventists could do a bit better on showing that this earth is where we will stay and this earth is worth taking care of, even now, uh, in, in, in some ways. So, so, but this, in a, in a sort of temporal axis, it ends, Revelation ends with the new earth. But you know <coughs> that the English language can use the word end in a different way than a temporal the end of a series of events. That's what we have looked at here. End in the series of events. And it ends on Earth, New Earth. But what's other meanings of end? It's end as purpose. To what end did that happen? That's a different way, and I'm interested in that. To what end is this story told, Revelation? Is it to tell us about the ending? Or is, it, is the end something other than ending? So here is the word we are wanting. And I want to make a case for understanding. And if end has to do with understanding, then it is not here that is our focus, but it is here, the center. So there was silence in heaven for about an hour. That, to me, is the text revealing the end of Revelation. With when end is thought of as purpose. That that revelation in the setting of the heavenly council brings a resolution. They understand it. Their minds are unlocked. They see the point. They see the solution. So here we take those away, and I end this topic, and I hope to see you back this afternoon when we are talking about Revelation and the name. But the end of the book of Revelation is in the middle. <laughs>